When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are discussing the second part of our two-part series on Psychonauts, the sequel, Psychonauts 2. This game picks up three days after the end of our first game, Psychonauts and gives us a lot more information about how the Psychonauts came to be and the events that led up to the mission that Raz has to complete in this game. Incredible! This is where the first Psychonauts met! This is where it all began! No, Raz. This is where it all ended. This uh, game also has a more star-studded cast, in that Jack Black and Elijah Wood voice characters in this game, uh, adding just, you know, a little bit more celebrity. And Jack Black voices a character who is a singer, so he gets to show off some of his chops in the game as well. Um, So like I said, this takes up three days after the events of the first game. Uh, even though the sequel was released in 2021, which was like 16 years after the first game came out. So fans of this game had to wait for quite a while. Uh, and I will say up top, spoiler alert, if you are a fan and you haven't had a chance to play Psychonauts 2 yet, uh, even though it, it came out a few months ago, I know it can be hard to get around to playing games right when they come out. So spoiler alert, if you don't want any of the story ruined for you skip this episode, come back to it after you've had a chance to see it for yourself Uh, or listen in if you like spoilers. I don't know. It's up to you. (laughs) Uh, So here we are three days after Raz has defeated Coach Oleander and Dr. Lobato uh, back at the summer camp. The head of the Psychonauts, Truman Zanotto, was kidnapped by Dr. Lobato uh, at the end of the first game. And so Raz has officially joined the Psychonauts and is going to help rescue Truman. Now, the events of that rescue mission actually are in a standalone game called The Psychonauts and the Rhombus of Ruin, which I have not played because it's a VR game and uh, my poor vision and VR do not mix well. Um, But it's summarized for you at the beginning of the Psychonauts 2. There's like a little intro And so we join Raz as they're coming back from that mission. They've rescued Truman, but he is not awake. He's in some sort of coma. And they return to the official headquarters of the Psychonauts, which is called the Mother Lobe. And of course, it looks like a big brain. Um, And Raz thinks that he's going to join the team as an agent, but he is demoted to intern because he was never officially made a Psychonaut agent, even though he's been going on missions with them. As Raz is helping the Psychonauts figure out who is behind 
this plot to steal Truman's motto, he discovers the story of Maligula, who was a psychic with hydrokinesis, which is like the power to move water, uh, who was defeated by the original Psychonauts 20 years ago. Raz's family, the acrobats, <laughs> also crash at the mother lobe and try to set up their circus act in the parking lot. So Raz must reunite the original Psychonauts to help defeat the return of Maligula and her followers while managing his family who have previously hated psychics and have been cursed by water. And so Raz is kind of managing their feelings about him being a psychic with his new job or his new internship. And remember, he is 10 years old, so this is a lot for a 10-year-old to balance. Um, to figure out how to defeat Maligula, he first has to restore Ford Kroller's mind, which shattered after the original battle against Maligula. And Ford Kroller was one of the original psychonauts and helped to found um, the agency. In the process of restoring Ford's mind, Raz learns that the woman who he thought was his grandmother, Nona, is actually his great aunt, Lucretia, who is also known as Maligula. And this explains Raz's family's curse about dying in water. And if you'll remember from last episode, um, Raz can't go in the water because his entire family has been cursed that they will die in the water. And so every time he jumps in the water, he gets snatched by this little hand. And we learn that that curse was actually implanted. It's not a curse. It's just like a mind trick was implanted in Rez's family to keep his grandmother, who's actually his great aunt, from remembering her incredible power over water. So Raz, after fixing Ford Kohler's mind, has to reunite the original, uh, the five other psychonauts from the original six to join forces to defeat Maligula, who is actually still a part of Lucretia and is a part of her like primal survival instincts. Each of the official original agents has some sort of crippling fear or mental health condition that Raz must go into their brain to solve. And once they are healed and reunited, Raz enters his great aunt's mind for the final battle against Maligula herself. And he must pull upon his great aunt Lucretia's psychic energy to once and for all seal Maligula away. So in a nutshell, that is the plot of Psychonauts 2. And through all of this, we learn a lot of kind of the backstory for the world that Raz is in as a psychonaut. And he also meets a lot of new characters who aren't from the past, such as his new class of interns and the deputy director of the psychonauts. And so there, there's so much to this game. And this game is like probably three or four times larger than the first game, Psychonauts original. <laughs> uh, so there's there's a lot to do. There's a lot of collecting things, lots of like little quests to hit, um, and more areas to explore uh, than I think the first game had. And it makes sense seeing that it's a more recent game with different technology. There's a lot more to be done. Um, but I also think that the people who made the game had a lot of chances to really expand kind of the lore uh, as the release of the game got pushed back quite a few times before it actually released. It was supposed to release originally like 2018 or something. So it got it got pushed quite a few times 
Um, but I think it shows in that the game is really clean. It's really polished. It still retains this like psychedelic, like cartoon style that was so interesting from the first game, but it's a lot more polished. There's a lot of details. Uh, I just think that this game, you can really see that they got to pour a lot of their heart and soul into this game and really take their time with it. So again, if it's a game that you're interested in playing, I highly recommend playing it. Yeah, I, I had a really good time with it. So once again, much like the first game, Psychonauts 2 has uh, a lot of symbolism and a lot of different ways in which it represents mental health or concepts about the brain. So I'm going to spend most of this episode talking about those things. Some of the stuff is kind of plot heavy, but I want to try to spend some time, most of the time talking about the actual symbolism and what they represent and kind of the messages we get from this game about mental health. So one of the first things that is, I think, unique about Psychonauts 2 is that it finally shows the downsides of Psychonauts meddling in people's psyches. So if you'll recall from last episode, uh, one of the mechanisms of the game is that you as the main character astrally project into other people's minds through this little door. And that's the same mechanism in this game as well. But one of the first minds that Raz... Uh, projects into is the internship director, the deputy director uh, of the Psychonauts. And while in her mind, you learn a a new mechanic in this game, which is a power called mental connection, where Raz can connect different thoughts in a person's mind to kind of change the setting of the world. So there's like these little thought bubble clouds that float around and Raz can make these different paths to connect different clouds to form essentially new thoughts in the person's mind. And when he's first learning the skill in this level, in the director's mind, every time he connects two new thoughts, she like kind of narrates what the new connection is. So you can see how those thoughts are being joined to create one new thought that she hadn't had before. So Raz goes into her mind an attempt to convince her that the intern should be allowed to go on the official Psychonauts mission to figure out who is the mole inside of the mother lobe because there has to be someone working on the inside if they were able to kidnap Truman Zanotto, the, the head agent. So he goes into her mind and he decides to try to connect new thoughts that hadn't been there before to convince her to go to a casino, which is where the the evidence has been leading them to the potential mole could have been located at this like casino. So Raz connects these thoughts and instead of just convincing her or giving her a new thought that would encourage her to be more lenient to letting the interns go on this mission, he unlocks a latent gambling addiction and sends her in an absolute frenzy to win big at the casino. So she's like not there for the mission. She's there to gamble and win a lot of money to then fund the agency. So that's obviously a bad thing, right? (laughs) It's that you gave someone a gambling addiction, which is represented by a like neon octopus, which I think is really cool that the addiction 
is represented by this creature that has like these limbs that keep popping up like these tentacles that even if you think you've like squashed one side or you think that been able to defeat it like another one pops up out of nowhere and we later get a scene with Raz and one of the other agents where the agent is specifically telling Raz like we have to be very careful with our job and that if we go into people's minds we can do some real damage and I know this might be a little bit of a stretch because the Psychonauts isn't a real job um, but I thought it was interesting as a mental health professional of this being kind of like the conversations that I have had with professors and supervisors, especially at the beginning of my training, where you're talking about the very like vulnerable work it is that you do as a mental health professional and that you have to be very careful with the power that you hold over someone when they are telling you all of their secrets, all of their issues, like really just opening themselves up to you and you hold a lot of power and you have a lot of like a uh, sway, your, you, your opinion holds a lot of sway for the person that you're working with. And so I was really glad to see this being put in there. And although the work of a therapist is not to physically connect <laughs> different thought patterns in your head, some of the work that a therapist might do is to help you to shift the way that you think about like a problem or a situation in your life. And it's like, a really big deal. Like that's a big responsibility and it should not be taken lightly. It should be taken very seriously and understood that there could be consequences to those types of actions. So I really liked that Psychonauts 2 threw in an acknowledgement of, you know, when we meddle with the brain, things can happen. And whether that means through the use of things like medication, through the use of surgeries or through the use of therapy meddling with or not not meddling that's like <laughs> not how I want to describe treatment but you know interacting with or attempting to change parts of the brain can have consequences and so the the people doing those things to help somebody change have to hold that as as very serious so I really like that I think it might be a little bit of a stretch and if you weren't in the mental health field you might not <laughs> have gotten that out of that interaction that Raz has with uh, the agent, but that's what I got out of it, given my experience. Now, Psychonauts 2 also adds a lot more creatures to that Raz has to fight in the brains, um, way more than in the first game. And some of them, I think, are a lot more symbolic than the creatures from the first game. So some examples in Psychonauts 2 are... Uh, regrets. So regrets are these like flying creatures that carry these really big weights and they try to drop the weights on you. And so that symbolism of regrets being things that are very heavy, that kind of drag you down and can crush you, I think is communicated in the the design for these creatures. Um, there's also creatures called bad ideas which are like these four-legged little blue guys that throw these lightning bulbs at you that explode. And I liked that imagery because in our pop culture, we have references to ideas as being light bulbs, right? Like the light bulb going off. It's like, you got a good idea. But these are bad light bulbs in that they immediately explode <laughs> if you touch them or go near them. So a bad idea can go off like a light bulb, but can also explode like a broken light bulb. 
uh, which would then have consequences, right? Now you have shattered glass everywhere. So I liked that design for bad ideas as well. Um, there's also monsters called enablers, which they look like drum majors and they kind of stomp around and cheer <laughs> and they prevent other creatures from getting hurt. So this is like a reference to any type of enabling activity or thought that you could have that's just kind of soothing over any uh, like desire to change or, or desire to um, maybe not face the consequences. <laughs> and in the game with enablers, once they have latched onto another creature to protect it, you have to get rid of the enabler first in order to take out the other creature. So it just shows how enabling a thought or and even enabling something like a mental health condition can lead to you not being able to work with it or or get it to reduce in its potency. There's also a representation of panic attacks. These are monsters that move super fast. They're like multicolored and kind of blinking and they can't be attacked until they are slowed down with a like time stopping psychic power. There's doubts, which are these kind of sludgy creatures that slow you down and leave this goop everywhere. And I liked that doubts and regrets were both in the game, but very different. Um, regrets are like these flighty creatures that, um, you know, they do carry a lot of weight, but they kind of flit all over the place. Whereas doubts are sticky <laughs> and kind of prevent you from moving forward. So, because you can have a doubt before you've done something that you might regret later, right? Like you can doubt your ability to get a new job, doubt your ability to start a new relationship, and that slows you down from actually taking those chances, right? And then a regret usually comes after something has happened. So, Maybe you regret that you didn't apply for that new job or regret that you did break up with your partner before you had worked on your relationship or, you know, whatever it is. It's always something that comes after. And so doubts and regrets, although I think often can be related or maybe sometimes even used interchangeably, I like that the game separated them out and made them very opposite in their design. And that one is although carrying weights, flitting around in wings. And the other one is very sticky, low to the ground, slowing the character down. And I think these little details, this very like fine tuning between something as simple as the enemies you fight in the game is a testament to giving the these game studios like the time and resources to really work on a game uh, and, and not rushing it for like a certain season or for a certain timeline, but letting them really get the work done in that something like these little details really gets a lot of attention and it really makes the game shine that much more. Um, two other creatures that were new to this game, um, bad moods, which just look like these big clouds of like dark squiggly lines. These shoot exclamation points at you, which is kind of like they are yelling at you. And the only way to defeat these enemies is to use the psychic power of clairvoyance on them to kind of find the source of the bad mood and change it into a good mood. And it makes these 
creatures difficult to fight in the game because you're having to switch between these abilities and blah, blah, blah. It's a little cumbersome. But again, an interesting um, way of looking at it, of symbolizing a bad mood in that the bad mood actually doesn't just get defeated, but it, it has to be transformed. And almost like the game is saying a bad mood and a good mood are just two sides of the same coin. It's a mood, right? And that you can transform a bad mood if you try to understand it, right, through clairvoyance. Although we don't have clairvoyance, we have thinking (laughs) in real life. Um, But you can transform a bad mood and it doesn't have to be the end-all be-all of like your day or your experience. And then lastly, they added uh, judges, which, you know, represent judgment. And these, I, I found the design very funny because not only do they have gavels that they smash you with but if you take their gavel away like get it away from them somehow in combat um they throw books at you which is so similar to that saying of like throwing the book at someone which means like over sentencing them or charging them with like tons of crimes so the judge is literally throwing the book at you in the game which i appreciated i thought you know we love a pun we love to see it (laughs) out in the wild um but yeah so there's a lot more variety of enemies in psychonauts 2 um but each one of them do represent like a very specific type of either like thinking pattern or um emotional state that could be seen as like a negative experience for the person's mind whether it's because it contributes to their mental illness or mental uh negatively contributes to their mental well-being or because it's like hindering their actual behavior um so that again is something that i think is unique to psychonauts 2 and that i thought was a really great improvement from the first game so the main chunk of this game is within Raz going through the minds of the old Psychonauts who 20 years ago were fighting the same battle that Raz is preparing for in the game's time. Each of the older agents represents a different issue that has led them to become almost completely cut off from their friends and family. And in fact, all of the agents, with the exception of one, no longer are present at the headquarters at the mother lobe they've all kind of scattered to these different areas and do not have contact with each other and so the consequences of them i guess not you could say like not taking care of their mind or not taking care of their mental health has led to them to be socially isolated and these characters also represent kind of like the hippie era where experimenting with one's mind was encouraged and kind of the origin story of how they created the Psychonauts was discovering that they had these psychic powers and wanting to kind of come together and experiment and kind of grow their minds. But now 20 years later, they're kind of all burnt out and disillusioned. And I think this is kind of the way that we have culturally represented the hippies of the 1960s, of that in their era, they were very hopeful, they were passionate, there were lots of social movements, like, you know, people wanting change, fighting for these things, um, but the movement essentially died out, 
And what was left behind was maybe some like disgruntled and disillusioned people who were no longer organized in a movement in the same way that they were in the 60s. And I know that that's like a massive generalization uh, and, you know, doesn't apply to everyone. But I think that's kind of the, especially in the U.S., right, like the cultural understanding we have of this like era or this this subculture, this counterculture of like, quote unquote, hippies. And this also fits into the very psychedelic uh, setting that a lot of these levels take place in and contributes to the like rough the psychedelic references in the game's design, which I think are really cool and really uh, aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> uh, but overall, I think that's kind of like the what's kind of going on underneath the surface of a lot of these levels is these are like the old hippies that. They tried, they, they feel like they failed to do what they wanted to do. Maybe some of them sold out, some of them, like, their minds broke, and they just could, fell apart. They just couldn't work together anymore. So, first up in the minds that Raz has to work on is Ford Crawler, the first one you tackle. Um, and this, again, was the one of the original Psychonauts Ford was, and... He was like the head of the Psychonauts. He actually recruited most of the original agents as well. And his mind is referred to as shattered. And it's represented as a mirror and the pieces, it's like a hand mirror and the pieces of glass have broken and fallen out of the mirror. And what this really represents is disassociation. Uh, In fact, in both games... Ford has this like series of alter egos that he doesn't recognize. So there's the Ford Crawler psychonaut that you could talk to in the game, in both games. Um, And then there's like Ford the Ranger, Ford the Chef, the Janitor, the Mailman, Bowling Alley Attendant, the Barber. Uh, But all of those are disparate identities that are not connected to each other nor connected to the main uh, identity of Freud Freud. <laughs> Freudian slip right in front of us. Um, the main identity of Ford, the agent. Now, in the game, we're told that Ford's disassociation and his shattered identities are purposeful in that he used his psychic powers to shatter his mind after hiding Lucretia in the aftermath of the battle with Maligula. So he did it to himself in order to protect the secret he has that he didn't actually kill Maligula, but rather hid her away in Raz's family. So what it, and this is where I think the metaphor kind of falls apart in a way and that it was like a conscious purposeful decision. Cause what I think that uh, Ford represents is essentially what we would call DID, disassociative identity disorder which I talked a little bit more about in the Three Faces of Eve episode, which was a few weeks ago. Um, But this idea that there are fractured, separate alter egos or separate identities that are not connected to each other is kind of the crux of the understanding of DID uh, or what was used to be called multiple personality disorder. And so this idea that there could be parts of you that inhabit your body Uh, But you are not aware that they are there and they are responsible for maybe different aspects of your personality or managing your responses to different traumas. And Ford, his like shattering of his mind is in relationship to a trauma 
So it is in the way protective, but he was like consciously choosing to shatter his mind. And the reality is, is that for people who disassociate or experience DID, it's not a conscious choice that like your awareness makes. It's kind of a survival choice that your brain kind of makes without your consent. <laughs> your your brain is disassociating, is pulling your conscious awareness away from an event that is too painful to integrate into your experience and either having you completely forget it or having a different aspect, an alter ego, if you will, kind of take over and be in the driver's seat for a little bit while you figure out how to manage the trauma. So that's where the difference is in that Ford was making a conscious choice and people who experience disassociation are not making a conscious choice and they don't have necessarily control over their disassociation. But it is a defense mechanism and a a powerful one because you don't remember that it happened and you don't have control over it. It kind of takes over. And so uh, I think that Ford's experience of having all these aspects of himself in the game that are separate from each other and he does not remember them um, is a powerful example of what dissociation can look like, but it is important to understand that it's not purposeful in the way that Ford does in the game. Obviously, he has psychic powers (laughs) that make it a little different. Um, And Raz has to go into all these different aspects of Ford and find the shards of his mind and place them back into the mirror. So the integration of the identities is represented in putting together the pieces in the hand mirror that represent original Ford Crawler's like complete mind. And the game tells us that it is necessary for Raz to do this because Ford is the only one who has the memory of who Lucretia is and what actually happened after the battle with Maligula, that he had shattered his memories to protect Lucretia, who he was in love with at the time, um, and that Raz won't be able to kind of go on and complete the game or complete his mission without the information that Ford and Ford alone has in his mind. So once you've fixed Ford, (laughs) uh, it's on to the rest of the original Psychonauts. So I'm just going to go through them kind of quickly and show what they what they represent and how the game uses that to get its message across. So the first agent we, or that I'm talking about is Bob Zanotto. uh, And he's actually Truman's father. So he was like the predecessor of the person who's currently in charge of the Psychonauts. And Bob Zanotto's main thing is alcoholism or alcohol use disorder is what he represents. And when Raz goes into... Bob's mind, it's represented as a series of individual islands with bottles on them, like um, a bottle with a message in it or a message in a bottle that you would find, you know, abandoned at sea in a desert island. So it's all these little deserted islands with these bottles that Bob can't get to. And each bottle holds the memory of a person or Bob's memories of a person that was important to him. And on the island where Bob is in his own mind are a series of gardening pots where he had planted seeds that were seeds of memories of his loved ones that he can no longer keep alive. And this is because Bob's psychic powers are have to do with plants. He can like talk to plants and control them. So a lot of metaphors about like nurturing 
relationships and nurturing one's own self. So Bob has been neglecting not only his plants, but himself due to his drinking. And we learn through the different bottles and the different memories that Bob has that alcoholism actually runs in the family. And his mother, unfortunately, drank herself to death after his father passed away. So we see kind of the origin of the alcohol use issues in his family, which there's some evidence to show that as well, that um, substance use can run in the family, whether it's purely genetic or an issue of growing up in an environment where substances are used. It's probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, but Bob growing up with a mother who struggles with alcohol probably contributed to his struggles with alcohol as an adult as well. Um, We also see the memory of his son, uh, Truman, and how Bob's, like, basically neglect of himself and neglect of his duties led to his son having to fire him from the agency that he essentially started. Um, And then the third one is his husband, who was a fellow psychonaut, who is believed to have died in the battle with Maligula. And after the loss of his husband, Bob really cut everyone off and his drinking became even worse. So basically, we see in Bob's mind the developmental. And with Bob, we see that his drinking or drinking in his family drives people away. But unfortunately, when you drive people away and feel isolated, then that leads you to drink more. So he's stuck in a cycle of not being able to nurture relationships, like he can't nurture his plants, which then drives him to drinking, which then further drives people away. So he, he's stuck in a cycle that he, he needs help getting out of. Um, and his level, everything is liquidy. Like Phil, It looks like everything is full of booze. And Raz is going through each level trying to hunt down the seeds that Bob can then plant in his... Uh, gardening pots and a moth keeps picking up the seeds and taking them away and hiding them and the moth represents how you can kind of cover up the real problem and the moth is like kind of an enabler kind of just like pure denial um, which is an issue when we're talking about substance use right of that it can be really easy for people to deny that they have an issue with substance use and the denial then enables more substance use because if I can't see that I have a problem with my substance use, then I'm not going to do anything to change it. So, and and I like that Bob's portrayal of issues with alcohol wasn't just that like he's diseased or a sick person. And so that's why he's going to drink to excess. And the only way to solve it is for him to never drink again. But it was really shown to be that Bob had some deep wounds and probably a predisposition to alcohol use issues as well from his mother. But he had these very deep wounds and that was kind of driving the alcohol use and then getting in the cycle of alcohol contributing to the wounds getting deeper, leading to him attempting to find the remedy in alcohol, um, that that was a cycle that, first of all, could be broken and that Raz is able to break that cycle in Bob's mind and he's able to kind of come out of himself and, uh, and help Raz and kind of join the team again. Um, but it also shows that again, it's, it's not like a disease. Like if you've ever experienced AA and I'm not going to talk too 
poorly about AA because I know it benefits people and people like it. But there are other models of how we can think about substance use. And AA has one model in that it's a disease and has to be eradicated. And the only way to treat the disease is to be totally abstinent. And I liked that this game did not use that model and instead focused on what are the underlying reasons for drinking and if you can get those needs met then the person can change their relationship with drinking and Bob doesn't at the end of his level say well I'll never drink again he just kind of demonstrates that he understands that being isolated wasn't the best for him and that he's ready to kind of come out of his little greenhouse and join the world again so that's what this game is teaching us about like alcohol use and substance use issues, I think, in general. The next psychonaut that we can talk about is Agent Compton Bull, and he represents self-judgment and performance anxiety. Now, Compton's um, psychic power is that he can talk to animals, and he has become so overwhelmed by the thoughts of other animals, but also his own judgment of himself that he's locked himself away in a psycho-isolation chamber and basically has no contact with the real world or any of his past friends or family. When you go inside Compton's mind, it's a cooking challenge where his bosses and the other agents are judges and they are represented by uh, goat puppets, like hand puppets, uh, that eat the food that you have to make in the cooking challenge. Um And the judges are super harsh and they never tell Compton anything nice. And in fact, they're like, praise is pretty neutral. (laughs) It's like, it's acceptable. There's no, um, like, either accurate feedback or praise in general. And there are two reasons, I think, why the puppets are goats. So the one is that Compton can speak to animals. So I think it makes sense that in his mind, he's more comfortable imagining animals or interacting with his friends as animals and the second is that goats will eat anything like you could literally put a tin can in front of a goat and it will eat it so it's not that the goats are harsh judges because they would literally eat anything it's that Compton perceives them to be negative against the reality of a goat's nature so I thought that was kind of a subtle symbolism but a really interesting one that kind of the power of our perception and our own self-judgment is that we can look at a situation and look at reality and perceive it to be completely different right in Compton's case he's looking at a goat and perceiving it to be picky when the reality is is that goats are the exact opposite of picky right they will eat anything um and Compton has to kind of build up his competency right? Compton competency. Uh, And slowly as Raz helps him to win challenges, he's able to do it on his own and be able to kind of hold not only critical feedback, but not perceive everything to be as negative. And so after resolving his performance anxiety and self-judgment, Compton feels able to once again, engage with the world by coming out of the psycho-isolation chamber. And I did like this concept. This level is really hard because it's also timed. (laughs) And you are like running around and there's like knives and steam and yelling (laughs) happening everywhere on the level. But I liked how 
it was represented to be, first of all, very overwhelming, but also what it is like to be inside the mind of someone who is very critical of themselves in that every comment about anything that Compton did from the puppets in his mind before Raz wins the challenge is very negative. There's like no belief that Compton can do it. And you can see how if you've lived like that for 20 years with inside your own mind, it's this harsh, this negative, you can see how someone would lock themselves in an isolation chamber and never come out. And so I, and one thing that is cool about this game is because there's that big time gap from when the, the original Psychonauts fought Maligula to when Raz is fighting her, you get to kind of compare how things have changed for these characters within the game, within the story of the game. So imagining that for 20 years, Compton has been this harsh on himself, you can see how that would have consequences for how he lives his life. And as a good reminder for those of us who maybe don't struggle with anxiety or depression as long-term or as chronically, it can be a good reminder that for some people who have chronically struggled with mental health issues over many years, it's not as simple as snap out of it, right? There are a lot of patterns of thought patterns of ways of speaking to yourself of self-talk that have built up for somebody that yeah one dose of an antidepressant or one walker on the block isn't going to snap someone quote-unquote snap them out of their depression or their anxiety or or whatever it is that they're going through and so these characters all represent how if we've been kind of stuck in one pattern for 20 years even 5 10 15 years it's going to really ingrain itself and sometimes you need an outside perspective like a 10-year-old boy leaping into your brain <laughs> um, to help you kind of change up the way that you're thinking and get some fresh eyes on your perspective. So I think that ties very neatly into the uh, calls to action I've given in the past about going to therapy, <laughs> getting help, right? Reaching out to somebody who has a different perspective, especially if you've been struggling with something for a very long time and it feels like it'll never change because you, you've been battling it by yourself for so long. Um, and that's something that's really sweet about the game, having Raz like go into people's minds and alongside kind of their internal representation of themselves, he's helping them to kind of take back control of their own mind. So all that to say, another call to action to go to therapy <laughs> or reach out uh, to someone. There's resources on the website as always if you need a place to start. Okay, so that's Compton. Another agent that we deal with is Helmut Fulbear. So this is the character that's voiced by Jack Black and he is, he represents sensory dep deprivation which I thought was a super interesting concept to show in a video game. Um, and the reason why he represents sensory deprivation is that his brain is actually not in his body and has not been for 20 years. So since the fight with Maligula, Helmet sneezed his brain out and it managed to be salvaged and uh, stored away by Ford. But after he shattered his memory, he couldn't remember where Helmut's brain was, so it's been sitting in a lab in the mother lobe for 20 years. So a brain without a body does not receive sensory input. And I thought this was such an interesting part of the story in that this is true, that the brain itself has no receptors for sensory input. That 
the the brain doesn't have like nerve feelings on the end of it. <laughs> it has to be connected to the body, to the nervous system, the spinal cord, all that stuff to receive sensory input. So a brain in a jar, while it could still technically be alive and conscious, cannot receive sensory input. So Helmet for 20 years has been living without sensation. And Raz finds his brain, places it into the body of another character who does not have a brain. And that's a, a spoiler that I won't give away who that body is. Um, but once they put his brain to this body, he's beca- he begins to receive sensory input like crazy, like all at once after 20 years of nothing. And uh, Helmet is the brain in which we first experience panic attacks because he's so overwhelmed with sensory input that he's having a panic attack. And I loved this mechanism. I thought this was such a cute an informative part of the brain for multiple reasons. One is that sensory deprivation, I think, is not something that you see a lot in video games or media in general. And so it was an interesting idea to think about, like, what would it be like to be a brain that is aware of its own existence but has no sensory input for a very long time and then to be flooded with it? And the second is that this is actually, like, a quite distilled look at how panic attacks can start in that panic attacks often are triggered by sensory information and a feeling of being overwhelmed by the senses. Um, Whether it's information you're getting from your own body, like your heart rate going up, your breathing shortening, uh, or senses you're getting information you're getting from the environment, like smells, sights, uh, like tactile sensations, this like overwhelmingness can lead to a panic attack. And the only way for Raz to successfully fight a panic attack is to use a psychic technique where he slows down time. And this is so similar to like how we actually can treat panic attacks. Now, we don't obviously have psychic powers to stop time, but a lot of the techniques that you might learn from a mental health professional about dealing with panic attacks are all about slowing down the amount of sensory information that the person is receiving. So you may learn something like a grounding technique where you're asked to just focus on what is in the room with you right now. Like look around for five things you can see. What are four things you can hear? Three things you can uh, smell. Two things you can touch. And one thing, whatever the last sense is. <laughs> I, just, I just totally forgot. Um, but focusing in on what is limited sensory information that's right in front of you rather than getting sucked into all of the sensory information at the same time and the cognitive part of a panic attack where you're thinking about the future, you're thinking about all these things at the same time, your mind feels very overwhelmed. It's all about how can you slow down all these processes, ground yourself into the current moment, we're here right now, this is what's going on around us, and we're safe. So, I absolutely loved it when <laughs> the panic attack showed up and we learned how Raz has to fight them with this power of slowing down time. So Helmet, we calm him down, fe- defeat his panic attack, and we get to go into the rest of his mind. We realize his kind of core consciousness has been locked away in a vault separate from all of his memories and, well, yeah, all of his memories. And once we come out of the vault and we see his true mind, it's this vibrant, colorful, psychedelic concert called the Sensorium, which is essentially like 
Woodstock. <laughs> so that very like 60s concert, like campground vibe, but everything is like neon colors. And it's called the Sensorium because it's all about the five senses and you helping Helmet to integrate all of his senses, vision, taste, touch, hearing, and smell. And we have to reunite the senses so that the band can play, can be reunited. But each of the senses that you encounter in the brain are actually representations of Helmet's friends of the Psychonauts. So for example, vision is very clearly Ford. And you quickly realize that as you're helping Helmet to integrate his senses again, you're also helping him to integrate his memories of his friends. And he has held this idea for the last 20 years that his friends abandoned him and left him at the bottom of this frozen lake, when the reality is is that um, they do care for him and they, they haven't abandoned him. They just don't know that he's there because of all the events that have happened, but that they do really love him and they care about him. And so we're not only integrating his senses so that he can inhabit a physical body again, but integrating his memories and his uh, remembrances of his friends so that he can have uh, a more whole idea of his relationships to them. And he, inhabiting this body that isn't his, (laughs) does get to kind of start to reunite with these friends as Raz helps them to put their minds together again. So it's, I I like Helmet's character. It's also really fun that he's voiced by Jack Black because he gets to sing a song at the sensorium after you (laughs) reunite all the senses. Um, But he has such like a very, he has a very positive outlook, which is kind of nice because a lot of the characters are very like pessimistic, especially at the beginning of the game. And Helmet is just kind of this like vivacious, like positive guy. He's having a good time. And I loved the aesthetics of his his level. It was just so beautiful. Okay, another agent that we have to help with their brain is Cassiopeia, and she represents archetypes and identity diffusion. So in a way, similar to Ford's brain in that we are dealing with like these different identities representing different aspects. Um, but Cassie's mind, her archetypes are not... Uh, unbeknownst to each other like they know of the existence of each other and they are conscious choices so Cassie represents kind of the way in which we have different elements of ourselves that at certain points of our lives need to come to the forefront and at certain points of our lives need to not come to the forefront Um, but Cassie before Raz helps her is stuck in this place where her archetypes are not able to work together and she doesn't have a unified idea of herself. So when you enter her mind, uh, it looks like a library and it's being taken over by her librarian archetype who's very stern and doesn't want any of the other archetypes to be involved. And the librarian archetype essentially says like these other archetypes got us into trouble. I'm the only one who can keep us safe. So she like banishes the other archetypes and archetypes in this level are represented by like essentially like paper cutouts of the person and so Raz gets to have an archetype of himself that's a little paper guy but them being these paper drawings kind of represents that an archetype on its own can be quite flimsy but when you stack them together they become very strong 
So there are three archetypes of Cassie that the librarian archetype has banished, and that's the teacher, the counterfeiter, and the writer. And all three of these archetypes represent different, well, actually all four, the library included, represent different points of Cassie's life where she's had to rely on the skills or the kind of orientation of those archetypes. So the counterfeiter came to be when Cassie was like first in on her own and she needed a job. She ended up working for a counterfeiter <laughs> and she had to maybe do some criminal activity that she didn't approve of. She had to be kind of cutthroat. So the counterfeiter is like the more aggressive archetype. The The writer is the archetype they needed when they needed to make money, when Cassie needed a job. And so she wrote a book and that is the more like assertive, ambitious archetype. Whereas the teacher is um, represents Cassie's love for teaching people and is a little more gentle and wants to impart wisdom. And then the librarian is the archetype that keeps order and keeps essentially kept Cassie from falling apart for 20 years. So all four of those actually need to be reintegrated into the 3D version of who Cassie is. She's not a two-dimensional archetype of a teacher. She is a 3D representation of an entire woman and all of those archetypes are part of herself now this is probably the most Jungian level (laughs) because we are quite literally dealing with archetypes but I really like the idea that the game implanted in that it's not wrong that the librarian archetype developed the part that has gone awry in Cassie's mind is that only one archetype has for the forefront has the control when true functioning would be if all of the archetypes work together. And I like that this is differentiated from the shattered identities of Freud in that Cassie is very aware of these different parts of herself and does know when each part served her well in the past. The trouble she is having is that she is so afraid of the world after her fight with Maligula that the librarian archetype is the only one she can have at the forefront because she's so, so afraid. And the librarian is all about control and managing and keeping everything quiet, right? Shh, like a librarian. <laughs> and so for Cassie, what what represents like moving forward and being more healthy is understanding that, yes, the world is scary. And sometimes you do need that part of yourself who keeps things in control and keep th- things in line. Um, But you can't live in that place forever and you have to call upon other parts of yourself to live a full life. So Cassie's story, I think, is really about acceptance, accepting all these parts of yourself and understanding when they're serving you and when they're not serving you well. So that kind of wraps up Cassie's story. Now, the last agent is Otto Mentalis, who you actually don't go into his mind and he appears to have no issues. Um, He's the technology guy. So in the game, he gives you little gadgets. He also is behind the kind of shop uh, and upgrade mechanism of the game. And in fact, during the battle um, against Maligula, he used gadgets and not his own psychic power. And so that's probably why there's no damage to his mind as he used gadgets. He relies on technology a lot. Now, to be fair, Otto may be a little too on the technology side and seems to view people as brains in jars that can be experimented upon. 
And he doesn't necessarily have a lot of compassion or understanding for what the other agents have gone through. And he's the only one who, like, didn't leave the mother lobe. He's still out in his lab doing things for the other agents and working quite closely with them. So, eh, yes, he may be the most well-adjusted, but he also probably has a lot of issues. And if we went into his brain, uh, we might not like what we see there based on his uh, kind of cold <laughs> nature. So that's that's all leading up to our final battle, which will be inside the mind of Lucretia Mux, a.k.a. Nona, a.k.a. Maligula. Now, she represents essentially what I call survival instincts or the amygdala gone wrong and PTSD. And so when Raz first enters Lucretia's mind before Maligula has been activated... Uh, what he sees are false memories that were implanted in her mind by Ford um, after the battle to end Maligula. And her implanted memories are kind of simplistic and shallow, and they're all about Raz's family because she was supposed to be integrated into his family so that she would forget her past as Maligula. So her first, first when we go into her mind, it's like it's literally a flea circus because <laughs> they're a circus family. And so it's like these memories are a flea circus and we see that they're like, it's tiny. It's like this tiny little flea circus that you have to jump into and the rest of her mind is like blank. And I thought this was interesting, this idea of like implanting memories into somebody's mind. Like, can you, can you not? Kind of made me think about like the satanic panic stuff. And then I was like, you know what, Grace, that's probably too much for this episode, seeing as how big your script is. So we won't talk about implanting memories and we'll maybe save that for a different episode. But that's that's what it made me think of is this this idea of like, can people implant memories into other people? Um, and again, I'll save that research for another episode in the future. Um, and one of the reasons why... Ford had to implant these false memories is that at when Lucretia was kind of at her peak of Maligula's power, she had flooded her country, uh, flooded a group of protesters where her sister was protesting and she drowned and killed her sister, who is Raz's true grandmother. Um, and so Ford had to put these memories into her mind to make her think that she was Raz's grandmother so that she wouldn't remember the reality of killing her sister because that painful memory would trigger horrible things and maybe make her back into Maligula. So after Raz makes his way through the flea circus, he's finally able to go to the next level of Lucretia's mind where he finds that Maligula has been locked away behind a dam, which makes sense because she's a a water psychic. Um, But the dam is built out of essentially emotional baggage. And if you'll remember from Last episode, this was a mechanism in the game um, where you had to help every, in every mind there was emotional baggage to sort out. That's still a mechanism in Psychonauts 2, and so I think it's interesting that this dam is built out of this baggage in that I think sometimes we <laughs> use our emotional baggage as defenses like that and attempt to kind of cover up things we don't want to think about with emotional or, or painful memories. But the problem is, is that you can't use emotional damage to hold or emotional baggage to hold back even bigger emotional baggage because uh, essentially and eventually the whole thing will come tumbling down. And that's what happens in Lucretia's mind is that Maligula is not contained well enough behind this dam and she breaks out. And so what Raz 
has to do, his kind of final mission is to banish Maligula to like a pit that would put her behind or beneath Lucretia's conscious awareness. So the game spends some time in these levels explaining essentially what Maligula is. And while they call it, they call it like a primal part of her mind, I conceptualize that as your reptilian brain. So if you've ever heard of the like triune theory of the brain, it's that there's three layers to the human brain. The bottom layer is the reptilian brain. So basically what we have in common with lizards. And on top of that is the monkey brain. So what we have in common with monkeys. And then the top third layer is the human brain, which is what makes our brain unique. And the lizard brain, the bottom chunk, is responsible for a lot of our most basic functions. So the lizard brain keeps your lungs breathing, keeps your heart beating, and is responsible for a lot of very basic survival stuff. So if you've ever put your hand on the stove when it was hot and your hand jerks back before you realize that it's hot and you think to yourself, ouch, that hurt. Your reptilian brain is involved in part of that initial reflex. It registers threats before your conscious brain has, because it's at the bottom, (laughs) and it's plugged in connect directly to the spinal cord, so it's getting the sensory information first. So, in short, we are not aware of our reptilian brain. We're not consciously aware of it. And that is where Maligula is going to be banished to, is that kind of level of the brain that we're not consciously aware of. In the battle, she I think she represents the mammalian or monkey brain. So she's that middle. And in the monkey brain is located a structure called the amygdala. And your amygdala is essentially your like fear center. So the amygdala is the first to react it to threats. And it decides, do we need to be afraid of that? And if we are going to be afraid of that, what are we going to do? And it sends then messages up to the human brain, the the top, the neocortex layer, to help us consciously decide what we're going to do about this fear. And in some disorders, the amygdala has been, research has found that the amygdala becomes maybe a little bit too big or becomes a different shape. Like the shape, the shape of it has changed. And that means that the person's amygdala is maybe overactive and might be firing off more often than it should be. And this happens in PTSD. And I could go into the specifics of PTSD, which I'm not going to because we're already at an hour. But essentially what I think applies in this case is that in the brains of people who are living with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, the amygdala is firing off and responding to threats that are reminding the brain of past traumas. So a a classic example of this is like someone who has PTSD after serving in the military. And let's say they were in a traumatic event where there was gunfire and their life was threatened and they developed PTSD after this event. Then they come home, they're no longer in the war zone, but their brain is reacting to stimuli or things in the environment that remind their brain of that memory. So hearing fireworks or hearing a car backfire, the amygdala is receiving that information of hearing that sound and reacting as if the person was back in the war zone in that life-threatening event. 
And that may trigger something like a flashback. It may trigger a type of disassociation where the person no longer has control over their body and they're reacting not as if they were at a 4th of July picnic, but as if they were in a war zone. And that's, again, a simplistic explanation of it, but that's essentially what the amygdala is doing. And in certain disorders, the amygdala can become overactivated and is responding to things that aren't threats as if they were threats. And so I think maligula represents this level of the brain and what rather than being the reptilian part of the brain is actually her like monkey part <laughs> is her amygdala and that due to Lucretia's history and the political political instability of her home country her amygdala became activated more often and through the unfortunate manipulation of their psyches by the psychonauts Lucretia became more and more vulnerable to essentially like threat detection. And so the part of her that developed to respond to this constant like threat analysis or seeing that there were threats everywhere became Maligula. And Raz's job in the final battle is to put that part of her brain down below the consciousness because she's not needed anymore. Lucretia doesn't need Maligula to protect her anymore. Her, her amygdala doesn't need to be activated anymore, partly because now she's like an 80-year-old woman. She's safe. Um, but also partly because it's gotten out of control and Maligula no longer is serving to protect Lucretia, but is instead um, harming her and harming the people that she loves. And I think that is actually such a really sweet metaphor for what happens when you have essentially these disorders of the amygdala, right? Where that's not purely a disorder of the amygdala, but a disorder like PTSD where the amygdala would be involved in that it's become an overactive, right? In that, yes, we need our amygdalas. Our amygdalas keep us safe. And they evolved in our brains to make sure we didn't get eaten by lions when our ancestors were like roaming around hunting and gathering. But unfortunately, we don't need our amygdalas going off every time we hear a car backfire because a car backfiring isn't a threat to us. Well, unless it's right in front of you and it's running you over. But on the most part, a car backfiring is not a threat to us or, you know, like a scary movie is not a threat to us, but maybe our amygdala is overreacting to it and it's taking in those cues and telling us to run, flee, we're going to die from whatever's on the TV. There are lots of ways in which the amygdala becomes activated and we can be very thankful for our amygdala that it does help keep us safe and its main goal has been to keep us from being devoured and killed and it's worked right we've human evolution has made it this far and while we can be thankful for our amygdala we also need to let it know that it it's overactive sometimes right that it's it's not serving us well and so the compassion that the characters in the game have for lucretia and the understanding that Maligula is part of her that is no longer needed is such a refreshing take on mental health, such a refreshing take on like villains versus heroes. And I think this also represents the diversion between the, the approach to mental health that the first game took from the second game. And if you'll remember from last week, I talked about how the final battle is quite psychoanalytic or even Freudian in that Raz is essentially battling his father 
and, and battling like a representation of his father that is quite harsh and hates who Raz is. And there, you know, there is an understanding in the first game that that's not really who his dad is and it's just a representation, blah, 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 blah. But this game, Psychonauts 2, really makes it clear that Lucretia is not a bad person. And in fact, Molecula is not totally evil, but she has outstayed her welcome and she has no longer, she's no longer serving her purpose. And so it is time for her to go away. And I really, 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 really (laughs) uh, liked this perspective because I think it's more in line with where the field of mental health is at now, at least in my experience, in that if someone is experiencing, whether it's a a mental health issue, a trauma response, uh, a substance use issue, it's not that that person is bad or evil or that it's their mother's fault that they have these problems. The The reality is, is that there was something about that issue that served them at some point in their life, especially when it comes to trauma, right? There was something about your response to trauma that kept you alive at the time. And maybe it was for a long time. Like if you grew up in a very difficult childhood and you developed a coping skill that got you through your difficult childhood and you survived and at 18 you moved out and no more abuse, no more neglect, no more whatever from your parents, right? That coping skill got you to getting out of that environment. The unfortunate thing is that sometimes that coping skill, especially if it's maladaptive, becomes locked into your brain and that becomes your coping skill to everything from, you know, maybe an irritating email from a coworker to a breakup with a partner, right? That becomes your response to everything. And we can say thank you to that response for helping you to survive this long, for getting you to where you are today. But we also have to acknowledge that that response is no longer serving you. And what can we do to change the way that you respond to things so that you don't have to go back to that place of your trauma response? And I think that's the ultimate message of this game is how can we better understand the people around us so that if they act out or hurt us in some way, we don't necessarily see it as they are bad people or they have done an evil thing to me, but try to understand where are they coming from? How have their coping skills, their way of interacting with people developed based on their background? And where are their areas to change? Now, I'm not saying that means you go around and be everybody's therapist because that's not a good idea. (laughs) It will be exhausting and you shouldn't do that for free. (laughs) But I think it can help us to open up the way that we see other people's behavior and maybe have a little bit of extra compassion for the people around us and how they react to us, especially to those people in our lives who are really struggling with something like a mental health issue or a substance use disorder or a trauma history. And that is where I think the field of mental health has kind of come in the last few years. And although it is still important to think about what happened to someone in their early childhood and their relationship with their parents can give us a lot of information about how they function today. Uh, it's not all mommy daddy issues. <laughs> there's there's a lot more that's going on and we have a lot more understanding of how the brain works, even if we don't know everything yet. And so the end of Psychonauts 2, I think, is such a beautiful representation of how far the field has come, how mental health can be represented and understood, and essentially that not 
that no one is a lost cause. Like all of the main characters in Psychonauts 2 have some sort of redemption. And if not complete redemption, at least an opportunity for other characters to say, like, we get it. We understood how that happened. Um, and not, you know, not everyone is perfect. <laughs> I think that's understood. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is Psychonauts 2. That wraps up the the two parts I wanted to do on this game series. I really, really, really love this series. Uh, not only does it have a lot of cool symbolism and, and things to learn, but it's also really funny. It has a really unique art style. Um, I think it's like, it's just really neat to look at. And there's so much to do. They're, they're both like pretty big games, particularly the second one. So if you've got a couple of weekends that you want to fill, I highly recommend playing Psychonauts and Psychonauts 2. They're both available now. Um, and with that, I just want to say thank you for making it to the end of the episode with me once again. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode. Thank you.